Welcome to our Reformation Night here at the Parkway Church. Super excited as we get together to celebrate this year being the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So to set us up for tonight, what I want to do is this. I want to talk about what life would have been like as a Christian if you were a Christian in the Middle Ages. And so if you're wondering what is the Protestant Reformation and why is that important, that's what tonight is for. So let's set up. Let's set the stage, though, for you if you were a Christian in the Middle Ages. So here's what life would have looked like, okay? First of all, you didn't own a Bible, okay? You couldn't afford one. They were copied by hand, and they were very expensive because of that. Additionally, if you did have a Bible, if you could afford one, they were in Latin. So unless you were super highly educated, you couldn't read the Bible, okay? And then even if you had a Bible and it was in your own language, which was illegal, by the way, you didn't get that. You got killed for translating the Bible into people's vernacular language. Even if you did, you probably wouldn't have been able to read. Most Christians throughout church history have been illiterate, have not been able to read, okay? So here's what church service would have looked like if you were in the Middle Ages. You would have come into a sanctuary, and there would be stained glass, kind of like we have in here, and the service would be in Latin. So not only do you not have a Bible, and you can't read, and you can't read the Bible, and the Bible's in Latin, maybe you can come to church to hear the Bible, and you show up, and the services are in Latin. So you can't understand those either, okay? The preaching was done over to the side. One of the things the reformers did was to move the pulpit to the middle of the worship service, as if to say this is more important. But the pulpits were off to the side. And up front, you would have the partaking of the Eucharist and the Mass, the partaking of communion. And so there was this rail that would separate the priest, the clergy, from the laity. Because in Roman Catholicism, the priest is closer to God than you are. Okay? So there's this rail to separate us, the holy clergy, from you guys, the gross laity. That's what's going on. And so you would come forward and you would take a knee and they would put a little wafer on your tongue to take communion. Now in Roman Catholic theology, the bread and the wine literally, physically, materially becomes the body and blood of Christ in Roman Catholic theology. So they would put a little wafer on your tongue and you would let it dissolve. Because if it's literally the body of Christ, you don't want to chew the Lord, okay? So you let that dissolve, and then you didn't get to take of the wine of communion. Because if that's literally the blood of Christ, you don't want to risk spilling it on the dirty cathedral floors. So the priest would take the wine for you. <clears throat> you would then leave the service, and your life was scary. Your life was short. You, this is an age where you could literally get a blister and die, okay? There's no penicillin, there's no antibiotics or anything like that. It's a scary time to be alive. And here's how you believed you were saved if you were a Catholic in the Middle Ages, okay? There was a popular phrase in Catholic theology when it comes to salvation, and this is the phrase, God does not deny grace to him who does what is in him, okay? That's the phrase. God does not deny grace to him who does what is in him. So there's grace for you. You don't have to go to hell. There's possible salvation for you as long as you do your best, as long as you do what's in you. Now, do you see the problem that that creates? You can be saved. You can be saved by grace. How do I get the grace? Do your best. Well, how do I know when I'm doing the best that's in me? Quote in sayest, what is in me? How do I know that I'm doing my best? How do I know when I've prayed enough? How much money do you have to give to the poor for it to be enough? Uh, how much do I have to mean my prayers and mean my repentance to really be saved? So on top of this fact that you didn't have the Bible and you didn't have access to a Bible, in salvation, you could exhaust yourself trying to do your best to earn the grace of God. 
In Catholic theology, they would say you're saved by grace alone, but you see the problem when you say that you're saved by grace alone, but to get that grace, you have to do what lies within you. This is the world going on in medieval Roman Catholicism. There was a lot of corruption at this time, so you have popes and bishops and priests having children out of wedlock. You have popes that have mistresses, all right? Being the pope is not like a family business, all right? The son of a carpenter could be a carpenter. The son of a pope should not exist, all right? Catholic clergy are not allowed to get married. So there's infidelity, there's corruption, there's a lot of buying of church offices, what's called simony. Uh, In one church, for example, in Europe, that church was run by an eight-year-old unordained boy because his rich daddy bought him that church as a gift, okay? Uh, You didn't have pastoral education, wasn't going very well. You didn't have enough pastors. In some places in Germany, only one out of 14 churches had a pastor in residence. Around the year 1409, you had three different people claiming to be the pope. So you're trying to be a good Catholic, and you're trying to follow the pope. Which pope do you follow? And so there's all this corruption. So here's what we're celebrating tonight. We're not celebrating the fact that the church started with us. It didn't start with us. We're not celebrating that the fact we're not celebrating that the church started with the reformation. It didn't start with the reformation. Though there was corruption in the medieval Catholic church, Jesus's true church has always existed. He says that that the gates of Hades will not overcome his church. So throughout all church history, there's always been a remnant. There's always been some faithful believers that love Christ and trust Christ and want to follow him and want to submit to him in obedience. But there are times in the church where the church becomes more or less pure. And so what we're celebrating with the Reformation is a movement to get people going back to the Bible as the ultimate source of Christian authority. Now, since then, thankfully, Roman Catholicism's gotten a little bit better. They now do services in the vernacular, and they no longer consider us Protestants heretics, but rather separated brethren. We're in. Welcome. Welcome, separated brethren. But tonight what we're doing is we're celebrating that Christ has always been faithful to his church. Even in times where the church drifts, he brings it back. So this is a celebration not of the Reformers. It's a celebration not just of the Reformation. It's a celebration of Christ, who remains faithful. The Reformers would want us talking about the gospel, not as much just talking about them. So that's what we're celebrating tonight. So as we name guys like Martin Luther and we talk about that theology, that is why we are doing it to set the stage. Now, Tim Hollis is going to come up, and he's going to lead us in some congregational singing, which, by the way, is part of the Reformation. Notice that we didn't hire a professional choir to come in here and do Gregorian chant, okay? Congregational singing is something that is redeemed within the Protestant Reformation. Additionally, most of these songs, at least, are going to be in English, okay? The the language of the people, so that we have access to worship God. So Tim's going to lead us in some Reformation-style songs. I'm going to talk about a guy named Martin Luther, who's kind of the spearhead of the Reformation, Jeff Ashley is going to talk about some of the theology of the Reformation. What were the Reformers trying to go back to on certain doctrines? And it should be a lot of fun. So we hope that you're encouraged. We hope that you enjoy this. Go ahead and stand with me if you don't mind, and I'm going to pray for us to get us started tonight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you're good and that you love us, and uh, we thank you that you protect your church. We thank you for faithful men, even within Catholicism, that loved you and trusted you. We thank you for the Reformers who love going back to the Bible and love going back to your Word. And and we thank you for preachers today and pastors today and faithful Christians today who lift high the name of Christ and teach that the only way that we can be reconciled to God is through Him. And the only way that we get Him and we get His grace is through faith. And so we thank you for that. We ask that you bless this evening. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.
All right. Well, I'm going to uh, have our first short talk be on a guy named Martin Luther. Just to be clear, that is different than Martin Luther King Jr., just to make a, just a common mistake, one is a civil rights reformer who's named after this guy. He's a German. His name is Martin Luther. Now, he's not the only reformer. He's not the best moral reformer. That's a guy named Ulrich Zwingli. He's not the best theologian of the Reformation. That's a guy named John Calvin. But he is the spearhead of the Reformation. He is the match that's thrown on the gasoline of needed reform going on in the Middle Ages. So here's the first thing you need to know about Martin Luther. Ready? His name is not actually Martin Luther. Okay. Gasp. His last name is Luder, L-U-D-E-R. Why does he have the last name Luther then? It's not because moving the name over from German into English makes it Luther. Here's why he has that name. It was cool and fashionable and in vogue if you were a scholastic at this time in the Middle Ages that you would take on a Latinized name, okay? So at some point in his career, Luther started calling himself Eleutherius. That's a Latin word that means liberator, Right? So it's kind of this title he takes on himself. And the Luther of Eleutherius sticks. And so people then from that time on called him Luther, though his original name was Luther. You have a bunch of people doing this in the Middle Ages. So Luther's best friend, a guy named Philip Melanchthon, he's kind of the, the Robin to Luther's Batman. And uh, Melanchthon's last name originally is Philip Schwarzerd, which means Black Earth. And he changes it to the Latin term for black earth, which is Melanchthon. So a lot of people are changing their names to make them more official and Latin. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So let's talk about who is Martin Luther. Martin Luther was born on November the 10th, 1483 in Eisleben, Germany. His mom's name is Margaret and his dad's name is Hans, which is just such a good German name, Hans. All right. Uh, the Luther family, they had eight siblings. He had eight siblings. He's one of eight siblings, only four of which would make it to adulthood, okay? And Luther's dad, Hans, was a miner, okay? By that, I don't mean he's under 18. By that, I mean he works in the coal mines. He owns mines. He's a manager of mines. And Luther's dad is very, very, very harsh with young Martin, okay? So he's the kind of dad that no matter how good Luther would do, his dad was always mad. His dad was always disappointed, he was the kind of dad where if you got an A- minus on a report card, you'd get beat because it wasn't an A+. Plus, okay? That's the kind of dad that Luther had. And that would play into Luther's thinking later on. By the way, just as a side pastoral note, a lot of times the way that you, however your earthly dad is, a lot of times you'll end up reading that view back onto God. Now that's backwards, but we end up doing that, and Luther does that as well. So Luther is already kind of a perfectionist. He has a dad he can never seem to please. When Luther's 19, he almost dies. He's traveling, and he has a dagger. I don't know if he's just playing with it like 19-year-old boys do or what, but he goes over a bump in the road, and the dagger pierces his leg and cuts an artery. And his buddy, thankfully, is able to get a doctor to come and clamp off that artery before Luther dies. Now, I've often wondered what Western history would look like had Luther died at 19. Okay, We might all still be Catholic in here. Okay, So that's Luther as a young man. Now, his dad made enough money to send Luther to study at the University of Erfurt, okay? Originally, Luther went there to study law. His dad wanted him to become a lawyer because he'd be able to make a lot of money for his family. It's actually interesting. A lot of the reformers actually started off training in law. John Calvin did the same thing because the skill sets are similar. In both law and pastoral ministry, what are you doing? You're interpreting text. You're speaking publicly, you're building a case and building a defense, etc. But Luther goes to the University of Erfurt to study law in 1501. In 1505, he's visiting his parents, right? So he comes back home from college like you do, even back then. You'd come home and see your parents from college. 
And on his way back to the University of Erfurt, he gets stuck in a huge lightning storm, okay? Now, if I get stuck in a lightning storm, here's what I think. Oh, I bet some ions bumped around in the clouds and it just caused an electrical charge. But that's because I live post the Enlightenment. I'm a modern man, okay? Luther is a medieval man. You have to understand that to understand Luther. Luther is the kind of guy where if he goes out in the woods at night, he expects to run into a goblin or a ghost or a demon or something like that. It's very scary to live in the Middle Ages, okay? You could die at any time. The devil is like personally out to get you. That's Luther's world. So when Luther gets stuck in that lightning storm, he doesn't just think, oh, science is happening. He thinks, God hates me, right? And there is a, uh, 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 I almost said thunderbolt. That sounds like Greek mythology. A lightning bolt that strikes pretty close to Luther. And at that moment in fear, he cries out to St. Anne. Who is St. Anne? St. Anne is the patron saint of, wait for it, minors, all right, like his dad. So he cries out to St. Anne, and he says, St. Anne, if you will save me, I will become a monk. And so Luther makes it through this lightning storm, and he decides, you know what, I need to make good on my promises. I've already promised to St. Anne that I would become a monk, and so though I'm supposed to be a lawyer, I'm going to drop out of law school in a sense, and I'm going to enroll in an Augustinian monastery, which infuriates his dad that's already spent this money to send Luther to school to be a lawyer. <clears throat> so Luther enrolls, and he becomes a monk. And what Luther's monkery is, is defined by is that he is trying to earn the favor of God. That's what all he's trying to do. Luther realizes that God demands that we be perfect, and by the way, he does, which is why you need Christ if you're not perfect. He demands that we be perfect, and he has us born in sin, and then judges us for not being perfect. That's Luther's theology, and it's pretty right. Where Luther goes wrong is Luther does everything in his power to try to earn the favor of God as a monk. He said that if salvation could have been earned by monkery, it would have been through him, all right? He will pray for hours on end. He will rack himself with guilt for his sin. He goes to confessional so much that the other priests have to tell him to go away and come back when you have something real to confess, okay? So he'll go in there and he'll say, Father, forgive me for I've sinned, and he'll do his whole confessional thing. And as soon as he steps out of the confessional, he thinks, did I really mean that enough? Did I really confess all my sins? Was I really sorry enough? If I'm a Christian, why do I still struggle with sin? By the way, maybe you are kind of like Martin Luther. Maybe those are some of the things that you struggle with. And so Luther is trying. He's exhausting himself. Luther wants to know the answer to this question, which is a really big and important question. Ready? The question is, what must I do to be saved? How can I find a gracious God if I am a sinner? <clears throat> At this point, it was believed that the stairs that Christ climbed up to go before Pontius Pilate in Israel had been moved to Rome. And so Luther takes a trip to Rome, and he climbs up each of those stairs on his knees, saying the Lord's Prayer on each step, and asking God for forgiveness. And he gets to the top and realizes he doesn't feel any different. He doesn't feel any different. So he is killing himself, trying to please God. Luther knows, like we talked about at the beginning, in medieval thought, there's grace for you as long as you do what is in you. So Luther's thinking, how do I ever know that I've done my best? How do I know that I've done what's in me? And so Luther's exhausted, he's angry with God, he's frustrated with God. Luther gets his doctorate of divinity in 1512, and he becomes a professor of biblical studies at the University of Wittenberg in Germany, which is a new university at that time. <clears throat> and as he's a professor there, he starts lecturing through the Psalms, and as he's lecturing through the book of Romans, he has a theological breakthrough. 
he has a theological epiphany. We don't know when it happened. Scholars think it's sometime between 1515 and 1520. We don't know where it happened. Luther didn't even consider it to be his conversion. But Luther has this big theological breakthrough as he's reading through the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, there's a phrase that occurs over and over and over again. And here's the phrase, the righteousness of God. That occurs all over the book of Romans. Luther believed that the phrase, the righteousness of God, meant the fact that because God is righteous, he damns sinners. So every time Luther reads the righteousness of God, he thinks, yeah, God's own righteousness, whereby he must judge sinners because we've sinned. And as Luther is studying and getting ready for a lecture in Romans, he comes across Romans 1.17, which says this. <coughs> it doesn't say cough. God's word is perfect, okay? Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Luther realizes that the righteousness of God doesn't just mean the fact that God is holy and therefore he must judge. He realizes this very important point. He realizes that we can be seen as righteous by God simply because of our faith in Christ. That it's not just that God's righteous, but we can be seen as righteous just by faith. Here's what Luther says in his own words. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement, the just shall live by faith. Listen to this next part. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. So Luther has a big theological breakthrough that Jeff's going to talk about, the idea of justification by faith alone. Now, let's talk about Luther getting spicy and getting controversial. He's a very interesting, very sarcastic, very foul-mouthed, constantly drunk German monk. Okay? <clears throat> Here's the issue that starts off the Protestant Reformation. Who in here knows where you go when you die if you're a good Roman Catholic? Shout it out. You guys are so Catholic. Well done. Uh, yes, you don't go to heaven right away. You go to a place called purgatory. Purgatory is not hell. If you make it to purgatory, you're actually doing good because eventually you'll end up in heaven. Purgatory is where you go to burn off any remaining sin or defilement in your life before you can go to heaven in Roman Catholic theology. <clears throat> and so you die. So let's say you have a, a sweet grandmother, uh, but your grandmother was also, I don't know, a little bit racist or something, okay? She's going to have to go to purgatory for like 500 years, okay? Now, what the Roman Catholic Church is doing at this point is they are selling what are called indulgences, okay? An indulgence is a certificate that's printed on paper or parchment that gets you time off in purgatory. It's like a get-out-of-hell-free card, okay? So instead of having to go to purgatory for 500 years, you can buy an indulgence and maybe your grandma only has to be there 100 years. That's a pretty good deal. How much money would you pay to keep grandma from hurting for 400 years. A lot of money. So in the Roman Catholic Church, you could pay money to the church, which they're using at this time, to build St. Peter's Cathedral there in uh, the Vatican City. You can go to the Vatican today, and you can see St. Peter's Basilica there. 
And so you can give money to the Roman Catholic Church to get your relatives out of purgatory. Okay? It's called the selling of indulgences. You could actually buy an indulgence for future sins. So you could buy an indulgence before you were going to go down to Cancun for spring break. Okay? You can buy these indulgences. <clears throat> now, there's a guy that comes into Luther's area, and his name is Johann Tetzel, John Tetzel. And he's like the used car salesman of indulgences. Okay? He, uh, he's got all these slogans. One of his slogans is, For every coin in the coffer that rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Meaning... When you put a coin in this money box and you hear the money clinking, what you're really hearing is grandma going through the gates of paradise, okay? Tetzel even said, and I don't, I don't mean to be crass here, I'm just trying to give you history, Tetzel even said that his indulgence could cover you if you had violated the Virgin Mary herself, okay? That's John Tetzel. Now, Luther gets super mad at this, okay? He does not, Luther, by the way, at this time is still very Catholic. He's not fully against indulgences. He is against the abuse of indulgences. And so what Luther does is he writes up 95 theses, 95 points and problems that he has with the Roman Catholic Church, okay? And on October 31st, 1517, that's why two days from now, it's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, Luther goes to the castle church door there at the town of Wittenberg, and he takes those 95 theses, and he nails them up on the church door, basically saying, I got 95 problems, but a pope ain't one, okay? So he takes these 95 theses. Now, he's not trying to start a revolution. He writes his theses in Latin, not German, because he's not trying to stir people up. He wants to have an academic debate with other Catholic scholars about these issues. And the church door, by the way, served as like the church bulletin board. So this wasn't like a seditious act. But Luther tacks up those 95 theses, and from then on out, Luther will be in trouble with the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? Here's what happens after he posts those theses. The Roman Catholic Church, somebody takes those theses, by the way, translates them into German and starts spreading that around. Luther didn't do that. Somebody else did that. But now Luther's ideas of critiquing the most powerful institution in the world are now being spread around. And so what what Rome does is they send a guy named Cardinal Thomas Cajetan to get a revocation from Luther. So Cajetan shows up and he says, are you Martin Luther? And he says, yes. And he says, you must recant your views. Do you recant? Will you say revoco? And Luther's like, can we talk about this, or can we open the Bible? And he's like, nope, this is not up for discussion. Do you recant your views? And Luther doesn't recant. That's strike one, okay? Luther gets challenged to a debate on these issues by a guy named John Eck. Remember that name. That's going to be interesting later on. John Eck debates Luther at what's called the Leipzig Disputation, okay? Here's what Luther wants to talk about at that debate. Luther wants to talk about the Bible. He wants to talk about Romans. He wants to talk about Paul. John Eck, though, is an excellent debater, and John Eck will not let Luther do that. What John Eck does is he shows that Luther agrees with a guy that's already been condemned by the Roman Catholic Church, a Bohemian guy named John Huss. John Huss believed in predestination, which is biblical, and he was condemned by the Roman Catholic Church for it. And so all Eck has to do to beat Luther in this debate, Luther's like, can we talk about the Bible? Let's talk about Paul. Let's talk about salvation. And John's like, nope. Do you agree with these views? Yes. You know who else agreed with those views? This heretic. I beat you at this debate. And so Eck beats Luther at the Leipzig Disputation. That's strike two. Okay, so again, pretend you're Luther. You're a monk. You have a tormented conscience, but all of a sudden you realize that God could be gracious, and you were told to recant your theses, and you didn't. And now you just lost a debate because a guy showed that you agreed with a guy who's been condemned as a heretic. Things are not going well for you if you're Martin Luther. Okay? In 1520, Luther is finally excommunicated by the Roman Catholic Church, which means to them, you're going to hell. 
Okay? The, uh, the papal bull that's written against him is called uh, Exerge Domine. Rise up, O Lord, is what that means in Latin. It describes Luther as like a boar in a vineyard, a wild boar tearing up God's vineyard, tearing up God's church. Luther takes that papal form of excommunication, calls everyone together and burns it publicly in the town square as if to say to the Pope, forget you, okay? We will do what we want. That's strike three. In 1521, Luther is called and summoned to what is called the Diet of Worms, okay? Luther is going to stand before the emperor, and he's going to stand before Catholic theologians <coughs> to give an account for his writings, okay? And guess who the guy is that ends up questioning Luther at the Diet of Worms? A guy named John Eck, but wait, it's a different John Eck, okay? He has two guys that hate him with the exact same name. So if he ever meets a third John Eck, get out of there, Luther, all right? So a different John Eck, a guy by the same name, but a different guy, lays out all of Luther's books on a table. And he says, Luther, you've been condemned by the Roman Catholic Church. Do you recant your views in these books? <clears throat> and Luther tries to worm his way out of it, okay? That's a pun, by the way, because it's called the Diet of Worms. It's spelled like worms. Never mind. So Luther, Luther says, wait a second. I can't recant everything in those books because there's a lot of things in there that we would agree with. I talk about Jesus. I talk about the Trinity. You guys would all agree with that. And they say, no, 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 no. This is, not a, this is a yes or no answer. This is not up for debate. You've already been condemned. Will you recant your views on what you've written? And Luther says, give me a day to think about it. Now, it's interesting. We don't know why Luther does that. We don't know if he got scared. We don't know if he just wanted more time to pray. But he comes back the next day, and here's his response. Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I trust neither Pope nor council alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the Scriptures I have cited. For my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor right. <coughs> That's strike like four, okay? But he stays. He says, unless you can show it through reason, Luther's not... Uh, against reason or thinking through the scriptures, or you can show it to me through scriptures, I can't recant. Now, at that point, Luther's a condemned man. He can be killed. He's already going to hell. It's tough to be Luther, okay? On his way headed back after the Diet of Worms, he has some friends kidnap him so that he doesn't get killed. He doesn't have that happen. The, the friends plan it. A guy named Frederick the Wise and his friends, they plan to kidnap Luther. Luther doesn't know they're going to do this. And they capture him, and they go lock him up in a castle for eight months, Okay? so that no one else will kill Luther. They're like, to keep people from killing him, we will kidnap him, okay? The ends justifies the means, I guess, in that point. So <clears throat> they kidnap Luther, and they take him to a castle called the Wartburg in Germany. And there, Luther starts acting kind of weird. He starts going by the name Junker Jorg, which means Sir George, Knight George. He takes on the name of a knight. He starts dressing in military clothing, which is awesome, okay? He grows out a big beard, which is awesome. And while he's there, he translates the entire New Testament from Greek into German in just 10 weeks by himself while undergoing severe spiritual attack. Because one of the views that Luther has is that what's essential for the Reformation program to continue is that we have to have the Bible in the language of the people so that the Roman Catholic Church cannot hold people captive to the Word of God. That's what goes on at the Wartburg Castle. Now, <clears throat> Luther goes on to do a bunch of very strange things. In 1525... He marries a former nun, okay? So think about that. Luther was a monk, so he renounces his vow of celibacy. He marries a girl named Katie. Her name is Katharina von Bora, and she is a nun. 
So she has to recant her views of celibacy. They come together and get married. He's 41. She's 26, which is kind of, kind of a sketchy difference. But they get married, and supposedly they had a great marriage. They had six kids and adopted four more. Do you know how Katie got out of the convent? They had to smuggle her out in a fish barrel, okay? So when you think of hygiene, like in the Middle Ages, it's not great, all right? It's not great. But supposedly they had a pretty good marriage. He called her names like My Rib. Uh, he called her Lord Katie. Uh, supposedly they had a pretty good marriage. One time, Luther was all anxious and depressed and just kind of wallowing in his own sorrow. And his wife came in the room dressed in all black like she was going to a funeral. And he says, what? why are you dressed like you're going to a funeral? And she said, well, since you've been acting like God is dead, I figured I would join you. All right? So she's a little bit feisty. She's a little bit spicy, Katharina von Bora. Okay? <clears throat> now, Luther ends up dying at 1546 at the age of 62. He left his possessions to his wife, despite the fact that that was against Saxon law because she was a woman. So he's a little bit progressive on that, uh, that issue. Now, for time's sake, I don't have a lot of time to go in. There's a lot of fascinating things about Luther. A lot of things we're having to skip over. Let me give you the low points of Luther, and let me give you the high points of Luther. He is a hero in some sense, but he's a flawed hero, okay? He's not Superman. He's Batman. He's got a dark side, okay? So let me talk about some of the negative things about Martin Luther. Here's the first one. <clears throat> he was very crass, okay? He's actually a lot of fun to read because of that. He's got a real foul mouth. He makes fun of his opponents. He demonizes his opponents. He's really sarcastic. He's really brilliant. He's a lot like, does anyone here know who Mark Driscoll is? He was a pastor up in Seattle that kind of had a falling out with larger evangelicalism. But Luther's like the Mark Driscoll of the 1500s. He talks about beer. He talks about sex. He's very crass. He just demonizes his opponents. And had you had the evangelical tone police around in Luther's day, the Reformation probably would have never happened. So he hit people hard, but they needed to be hit hard. But it is a mark against him that he is very crass. I won't go over some of the things he calls people because there's curse words involved. You can go online, though. There's actually a Martin Luther insult generator online that you can click a button and it will give you one of his insults. So I can't give you all of them. I'll simply give you one just to make the point. He tells one guy, you are a brothel keeper and the devil's daughter in hell. All right? Things like that. Number two, another mark against Martin Luther. These are low points. <clears throat> Luther uh, probably struggled somewhat with alcoholism. He got drunk a lot, okay? Now, drinking's not sinful, and for most of church history, Christians have drank. Uh, Luther's wife brewed beer in the bathtub. John Calvin's salary was paid in wine, but the problem with Luther is that he imbibed a little too much. One of the things that got him in trouble with the Catholic authorities is he was at a party in Dresden, and he got drunk, and he started bad-mouthing a guy named Thomas Aquinas. If you don't know who Thomas Aquinas is, he is the number two biggest theologian in Roman Catholic theology after St. Augustine, uh, and that got Luther in trouble. One time, a student told Luther, Luther, I really struggle with anxiety. What should I do when I struggle with anxiety? And Luther said, you should get drunk. That's what I do. Okay? So again, that last quote, by the way, there's, uh, take that with a grain of salt. The uh, documentation on that is a little sketchy, but the point being is that Luther did sometimes imbibe too much. Okay? Third problem with Luther. <clears throat> there was a scandal that Luther allowed. There was a guy who was a nobleman. His name is Philip of Hesse. Philip of Hesse had problems with, uh, let's just say, his wife. She was not necessarily fulfilling her marital duties. And so he told Luther about that, and here was Luther's advice. Oh, well, just take a second wife. And that's what he did. So Luther allowed a guy to take a second wife because his first wife was cold at home. 
And that obviously was a black stain on Luther's credentials. Now, Luther would later go back in life and say that that, that that was wrong for him to have more than one wife. But Luther did allow that in that case. He's very practical in some areas. He's like, oh, you guys aren't clicking? Well, here's a solution, right? So anyway, number four, another dark stain on Luther's life is what's called the German Peasants' War. You had at this time a lot of German peasants that were rising up against the nobility. There was this big shift of power from those in authority like the Roman Catholic Church to the people. And these, these peasants started rebelling against their German princes. <clears throat> and so Luther wrote a letter to the princes telling them to put those rebels down, kill them in the streets like dogs. And thousands upon thousands of them were killed. When you can write a letter and thousands of people die, you have influence. You have influence. Now, in some senses, Luther was right because of Romans 13. You don't get to rebel against the government like that without consequence, but this became a black spot on uh, Luther's record. Number five, he struggled with severe spiritual attack. I mean, severe. Luther is the kind of guy where he thinks he sees the devil in the room. He constantly is feeling condemned, constantly feeling like he's going to hell. He struggled with that his entire life. He was super lonely, sometimes depressed, very anxious. <clears throat> he had a dog to help comfort him named Topel, T-O-L-P-E-L, okay? But Luther is constantly feeling attacked by the devil. Now, here's how Luther recommends you fight the devil. I don't recommend this, but here's what he says. He says what he does is he makes fun of the devil and mocks him and breaks wind in his general direction, okay? That's what he does. That's what Luther's advice for fighting the devil. Number six, this is the biggest stain on Luther's credential, the one I'm about to mention. Luther is marked for being anti-Semitic, Okay? He wrote a book called On the Jews and Their Lies, and later on, Nazis would quote from that book during the Holocaust. They would quote Luther on that. Now, let's be clear what's going on with Luther. Luther's issue is not the same as the Nazis. Luther's issue is not so much one of ethnicity, although he does say some things in his writings that hint of that. Luther's big thing is theology. The reason Luther's mad at the Jews is not because he has some sort of ethnic program to cleanse them. Luther's deal is that he does not understand how they can't see that Jesus is the Messiah. It's so clear to him. Luther believes he's living in the end times. Luther believes the Pope is the Antichrist. He believes the Pope is the beast from Revelation. That's what Luther believes. And Luther thinks by these Jews not trusting Christ, they're delaying this. And so Luther writes a book, though, where he says they shouldn't have their businesses, they should be burnt to the ground, they should be used to do forced hard labor, and this will become the thing that most marks a negative mark against Martin Luther. Now, Luther's not responsible for the Holocaust. That would have happened anyway. But unfortunately, some of his writings were used by Nazis in the Holocaust because of his anti-Jewish sentiments. Luther was talking more theology, whereas Hitler is talking more ethnicity. <clears throat> and then lastly... Luther could be divisive when he didn't need to be. Luther had a chance to unite the Reformation in Germany and in Switzerland with a guy named Ulrich Zwingli, who's like the third big player of the Reformation. And they can't agree, though, on Christ's presence in communion. And Luther, instead of giving a little, Luther says, well, he's not even a Christian. He says, quote, he's of a different spirit, meaning he's not even a Christian if he doesn't hold my view of communion. And over the issue of communion, Luther and Zwingli split and you now have two reformations going on, what could have been a united front. Luther has a tendency to, to make uh, mountains out of molehills. Luther has a tendency to do that. Now, why is Luther a hero? <clears throat> Before I say that, I just need to say something. This, let this be a lesson, by the way, that there are no true perfect heroes other than Christ. Okay, No matter who you pick in history, they have sins and they have dark spots. 
No matter who you pick in the Bible other than Christ. You're like, I really like David. You mean the murdering adulterer, that guy? Right? Christ is the only hero that is perfect. All other heroes have blemishes. We don't need to excuse those blemishes. We need to acknowledge those and condemn them. But at the same time, we need to realize that Luther also does a lot of good. Why is Luther a hero? Number one, his doctrine of justification by faith alone. Luther didn't invent this. It's in the Bible, okay? But Luther is the one who, in a sense, rediscovers, is the one who promulgates, who popularizes the idea that to be seen as right before God, we just have to have faith in Christ. I'm not going to go into that because Jeff's going to talk about that in a second. But that is one of the biggest components of Luther's theology. Luther, when he reads the Bible, he has what's called a law-gospel distinction. Anything the Bible demands of you, Luther calls law. And anything the Bible says that God has provided for you, Luther calls gospel. Okay? Luther agrees that, that salvation is not doing the best what's in you. You're spiritually dead. He believes that salvation is purely trusting Christ alone. Number two, Luther promotes the idea that Scripture is the sole ultimate authority in Christianity. Not the Pope. Not canon law. Not oral tradition from the Roman Catholic Church. Not official interpretations from the Roman Catholic Church. But the Bible alone. And Luther translates the Bible into German. Specifically the New Testament first. Why he's locked in that castle there in Wartburg. Here's what Luther says about the Word. It's a great quote. He says this, I simply taught preached, write God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my Philip of Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. Here's what Luther's saying. I just taught the Bible, and then I went and hung out at the pub with my buddy Philip, and then I went home and took a nap, and the whole world was crumbling around me. I didn't do anything to destroy the papacy. I just taught the Bible, and the word destroyed the papacy. Okay? Number three, he taught that all people have equal access to God in Christ, okay? You don't have to go through another priest other than Christ. He is the mediator. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So you don't have to go through another one. You, all of us, have equal access to God in Christ, okay? Not a priest, not a pastor. They're not higher than you. A lay person and someone who's part of clergy have equal access to Christ. Luther allowed uh, the people in his church to take communion of both kinds, both the bread and the wine, not just the bread alone. He taught that uh, life and work of the average person has spiritual value. I talked about this last weekend in the sermon. That your work, even if it's quote-unquote secular, is actually quote-unquote spiritual. Okay, You worship God just through your normal work. The work of a lay person and the work of someone in clergy is equally valuable to God. He taught that mankind was born not wounded, but spiritually dead. He returned to St. Augustine's view that we are born in original sin, which means we are born spiritually dead. We can't do the best that's in us, because the best that's in us is to be dead. Okay? We need God's grace through and through. He returned us to Augustine's doctrine of predestination, that God's grace is so freely given that God decides who he is going to save in an eternity past, not based upon anything that we do or will do or believe or will believe, but just upon God's sheer mercy. And lastly, he taught that the church is not an institution, but wherever the gospel is purely preached. If you're Roman Catholic, your definition of the church is an institution. As the apostles lay their hands on people and commission them to be preachers, they lay their hands on people, they lay their hands on people, and eventually you get hundreds of years of this succession of bishops and priests and people laying hands on one another. So if you're Roman Catholic, the institution, the laying on of ordained bishops, the laying on of hands of ordained bishops is what makes the church. Luther says no. It's holding to the gospel of the apostles. It's holding to the teaching of the apostles that makes a true church. As long as there's the preaching of the word 
and the correct practice of the sacraments, okay? Baptism and communion. Originally, Luther added penance, but then he got rid of it. Baptism and communion. There, a true church exists. That's Luther. Good, bad, ugly, warts and all. Martin Luther, he's, uh, he's not Jesus. He's uh, just this crazy guy, but he's super great because he gets this movement of going back to the Bible begun in the 1500s. You having fun? That was good. That's great. So uh, thanks, Zach. Uh, Zach actually changed his name. A lot of you don't know this. His original name was Ted. I don't, I don't have anything else there. I just thought it's funny. I, I have studied uh, Luther a lot. I never knew uh, his, uh, his original name. I actually uh, uh, majored in historical theology in seminary. And uh, to show you a little bit of kind of the theology nerd that I am, uh, for our honeymoon, Casey and I went to Geneva and to Zurich and went and visited the churches of Zwingli and, uh, and Calvin. And so uh, some of you went to Cancun. My idea of romance is to go and see old churches. And uh, so uh, I think that the Reformation is probably uh, beside the, the, the early church, the first century or so, second century, uh, besides that, probably the most fascinating uh, time period in, uh, in church history. Uh, this is a period that is really uh, marks the transition from the medieval period into the modern period. As Zach was saying, uh, Martin Luther uh, is a medieval man. In fact, a lot of people would say he was the last medieval man. Uh, he, he really is the, the uh, pivot point uh, of the transition from the medieval period into uh, the, uh, the modern period. And so as we're talking about the Reformation, I think it's, it's really interesting and, and important for us to recognize that there's not just one Reformation. Yes and amen, we are celebrating an anniversary that is particularly marked by what uh, Luther does on October 31st, 1517. Uh, but really in the Reformation, there are all of these really diverse streams. Even as Zach had mentioned, uh, you have not only the German Reformation, but you also have the Swiss Reformation. You also have French. You have these pre-Reformed uh, movements. Uh, you have Luther. You have Zwingli. You have their later followers like uh, Philip uh, Melanchthon. Uh, you have later on, uh, just a, a generation later, you have John Calvin. Uh, you have the Reformation in England that's ultimately going to result in the Anglican Church. And then you have all of the different uh, reformations within the Reformation of the diverse strands that ultimately lead into what we think of as uh, Protestantism today with uh, the Methodist Church and uh, Lutherans and uh, Baptists and Puritans and all of these uh, sorts of things. And so uh, to kind of tackle what we're going to try to do in this time, uh, our final sort of section together, is really kind of uh, unify and to show some common areas of consistency. In order to do so, we're going to have to kind of paint with a broad brush uh, because uh, Zwingli and Calvin and Luther, although they, they had some central ideas, some central uh, theses, as we'll talk about, uh, there's also a lot of uh, divergence in regards to what they believe, even as Zach had mentioned, uh, that, that there is not a unified Reformation. There are certain things that they can't agree on, and so... Uh, so we'll have to kind of uh, paint with a broad brush. But what we want to do is uh, for years now, the, the past uh, 500 years, scholars have looked into this period, uh, the 1500s, the 1600s, even into the early 1700s, and kind of tried to, to, to say, what is it that we can kind of summarize this movement or these, these various movements how can we kind of succinctly summarize them and find some common motifs, some common 
themes, and, uh, and so uh, scholars have come up with what's called the five solas. You've probably heard of this before, S-O-L-A, sola. And, uh, and so what you might not know is if you were to ask Zwingli or Calvin or Luther to describe the five solas, they would have no idea what you're talking about, not only because they don't speak English, but also because this is a 20th century adaptation. It's only in the 20th century that, uh, that a scholar begins to sit down and really articulate these. So these are true of the Reformers and the, the Reformation, but uh, the Reformation itself didn't uh, necessarily uh, highlight just these five particular points. These are just things that as we go back from the, uh, the vantage point of, uh, at the time, 400 years of history, uh, and we look at what are some of the common themes, we've been able to kind of pull out these five threads that run through all of the different uh, reformers. And so let me mention those, and we'll spend our time kind of expounding each of them. So the five uh, solas, we'll begin with sola scriptura. Then we'll go into sola gratia, or sola grace. Uh, and then sola fide, or faith alone. And then solus Christus. Uh, Christ alone, and then sola dea gloria, for the glory of God alone. So we'll begin with this idea of sola uh, scriptura. I think most of us, if we think of the Reformation, probably one of the primary things, if we've ever taken a class or read a book, the primary thing that we think about is what we just talked about, which is righteousness. We, we read Romans 3. That's a big, huge, central thing for Luther. He says, I grabbed a hold of Paul and I wrestled him. I would not let him go invoking that imagery of, uh, of Jacob wrestling the, uh, the angel in the Old Testament. I would not let Paul go until he yielded to me what he meant by this idea of the righteousness of God. And so we tend to think that is the primary thing in uh, the Reformation. I think something that's even more central than that is this rediscovery, this reorientation of the church around uh, the Word of God and the issue of authority. Zach kind of alluded to the idea that uh, authority in the medieval church is kind of a fluid concept. In fact, there's this uh, period of time where there are three different popes. And, uh, and so who is the true pope? And you have popes that are killing other popes. You have all of these uh, sorts of uh, push and pull trying to, uh, to see what uh, the, the true authority uh, is. And, uh, and so you have this great schism in the church, as you have these three different popes. And so, uh, kind of a council is called to see who, who's the one pope to rule them all, right? And so, they come up with their own version of who the pope is, but the other two popes just basically say, well, I'm the pope. I'm above that council, and so I'm going to just invalidate their claims. And so, you, at the end of the council, you still have three popes. And, uh, and so, there is this intense sort of uh, uh, pressure on the church to really solve the issue of uh, authority. Now, the church would absolutely, the Roman Catholic Church would absolutely say that Scripture is authoritative. They would use that language. That absolutely would not have been a problem for them at all. But the problem in the Roman Catholic Church was that they had this, what's called a dual source of authority, dual source of authority. There's two different, uh, if you will, kind of uh, like a, uh, instead of a tripod, a bipod, there's two different uh, uh, stands, there's two different foundations of authority uh, within the Roman Catholic Church. You have tradition, you have guys like Aquinas and uh, Augustine, and, uh, and so you have this tradition, uh, Tertullian and all of these sorts of guys, and then you also have Scripture. 
And both of these things are valid. Both of these things are authoritative. The problem in the Roman Catholic Church, though, is that there was a little twist. And that twist is that the Roman Catholic Church held the interpretive key. It held the interpretive key to really say what Scripture actually says. So the, the church has the opportunity, though Scripture is authoritative, the church has the opportunity, though, to say this is what Scripture is actually saying. This, the church is thus the interpreter of Scripture. So although they're giving lip service to the idea that Scripture is authoritative, really you see the church sitting above Scripture. And, uh, and so in response, um, in, in response to one of uh, Luther's 95 Theses, um, uh, one of Luther's op- uh, opponents wrote this. He says, he who, he who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and the Pontiff of Rome, that's the Pope, as an infallible rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures too draw their strength and authority is a heretic. So this is one of the, uh, the key uh, distinctions within the Reformation. Does the church draw its authority from the Word or does the Word draw its authority from the church? The Roman Catholic Church says that the Word of God draws its authority from the church because the church is the magisterium and the Scripture is the minister. But the, the, the church is what sits supreme uh, over Scripture. For the Reformers, this idea of Scripture alone, sola scriptura, did not mean that Scripture was alone. The Reformers did not believe that Scripture was the only authority. They believed that it was the ultimate authority. It was the norm against which all other norms should be measured. It was the authority against which all other authorities should be measured. That's what's going on in, uh, in uh, the Reformation as it relates to Scripture. And the reason is because for Luther and the other Reformers, only the, the Word of God, only the Word of God is infallible. Whereas the Roman Catholic Church, as we just read, said that the uh, pontiff and the church is the infallible rule of faith. For the Reformers, the Scripture itself is the only infallible uh, rule. And, uh, and so, uh, Luther and, and the other reformers did not despise church authority. They did not despise tradition. They did not despise reason and these sorts of things. They simply sought to subjugate those correctly under the Word of God as the ultimate authority. That's why even in that quote that uh, Zach read earlier where it said, unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is held captive to the Word uh, of God. And so, in other words, he says, I have no problem with recognizing that there is some degree of authority within the councils. I have no problem in recognizing there's some degree of authority in the conscience. There's some degree of authority in reason. But there is an ultimate authority that exists within the Word of God. He'll also say this. This is an interesting quote. The church was born by the word of promise through faith, and by this same word is nourished and preserved. That is to say, it is the promises of God that make the church, and not the church that makes the promise of God. For the word of God is incomparably superior to the church, and in this uh, word, the church, being a creature, has nothing to decree, ordain, or make, but only to be decreed, ordained, and made For who begets his own parent? Who brings forth his own maker? Again, the idea there is to subjugate all other authorities to the authority of God's Word. And this has been a hallmark 
if you look at the history of Christianity, not just the history of Christianity itself, but going all the way back into the roots of Judaism, this has been a hallmark of the uh, pool when it comes to the issue of authority. So in, 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 uh, as the, the, the Scripture is originally given to the prophets and so forth, there is this emphasis on, thus saith the Lord, there's an emphasis on the Word of God. Think about post-exilic uh, Judaism, though. Think about Judaism in Jesus' day. Think about the things that Jesus will say where he says, like, you have used the traditions of man to invalidate the word of God. In other words, there's been an upending of authority. Whereas tradition is supposed to be a helpful thing that serves the word of God, there has been this movement where tradition is now above it. And then you have in the birth of, uh, of Christianity as that goes, it is this revealed religion and you have again this idea of the supremacy of the word of God over tradition and all other authorities. But then in the medieval church, again, you begin to get this twist where tradition is rising up above, uh, above authority. It's this image, uh, I've used this in a theological equipping class before, it's this image of if you've ever had a dog that's not all that obedient and you take it for a walk, and anytime you let it go, it just wants to run ahead of you. That's what it has to, uh, that's what it wants to, that's what it longs to do. And so you have to keep it behind you. That's like tradition. Tradition is something that serves the church, but it must be behind the Word of God. It must heal at the feet of uh, the Word of God. That's what's going on in, uh, in Protestantism. There is this renewal, this restoration of the idea that Scripture and Scripture alone is the ultimate authority. It's the chief authority. It's the ruler by which all other authorities are uh, measured. And this is happening, by the way, at the exact same time that the printing industry is, uh, is uh, kind of exploding with there being this, uh, this re- renewed or, or this invention of, uh, of movable block printing by Gutenberg. And so all of this is not only is there a theological renewal of Scripture, but there's also this emphasis on being able to read it yourself. There's also an affordability of the Bible. And so all of these sort of benefits. We've, we've mentioned before literacy, in fact, is one of the benefits of the Reformation. I found this really interesting as I was uh, thinking about this and doing some, uh, some research. Uh, you know, in uh, over the, the, the uh, 300 or so years, from early 1500 into the 1800s, if you look at all of the European countries, uh, most of them have a literacy rate that rises. They, they all begin about the same place, which is something like uh, 5% or something like that. And, uh, and, and most of them rise up to 50%. Uh, some places even as high as like 70 75%. There's one area that remains low. Anybody want to guess what country that is? It's actually Italy. Why? Because there's not this emphasis. For, for the Roman Catholic Church, there is this desire very much to keep people in darkness, to keep people away from the supremacy and sufficiency of God's Word. By the way, if you ever consider how important this doctrine is, if you want to know how important sola scriptura is, just consider what happens when a cult leader begins to say, thus saith the pastor, rather than thus saith the Lord. From there, we'll move into this uh, idea of sola gratia, or grace alone. In the, uh, in the fifth century, there had been a, uh, a man who had kind of faced off against Augustine. At least their, their theologies had faced off against each other. Augustine had really emphasized this idea of divine grace. On the other end of the spectrum, you had a guy uh, named Pelagius. 
And, uh, and Pelagius' big sort of idea is that you just simply do what is in you. That man, man is born as a blank slate. He's morally neutral. He can incline toward sin. He can incline toward righteousness. And Pelagius is condemned. He's condemned in all of the ecumenical councils, and uh, Pelagianism is condemned. But by the medieval period, there is this rise of Pelagian theology, or at least semi-Pelagian theology, as Zach had mentioned, where there's this idea that uh, all that you have to do to merit grace, which is a contradiction, even if you know what grace is, to merit grace, all that you have to do is simply do uh, what is uh, inside you. And so mankind really didn't earn salvation They don't really earn salvation, uh, but God has bound Himself in Roman Catholic theology of the Middle Ages, uh, that God has bound Himself to reward those who do their best, which is, uh, again, an an expression of Pelagian and probably sounds eerily familiar to some of us who have grown up in America, breathing this cultural air. Uh, God helps those who help themselves, sort of uh, mantra. And so think of this sort of view of grace kind of like paper money. You know, paper money in and of itself doesn't have any inherent value, but the the government has bound itself to view this particular uh, form as a a valid way of of creating uh, expenses and so forth. That's kind of the idea in Roman Catholic theology of the Middle Ages of grace. That grace itself is not something that we merit, but God has bound Himself to view certain acts and actions as uh, being valuable. And uh, and so Aquinas said, God does not deny grace to the man who does what is in him. This means the Roman Catholic Church begins to drift into the idea that mankind can contribute to some degree to his salvation. Mankind is wounded, but he's not totally dead in sin, and that uh, one must simply try their hardest The reformers' idea was to return to Augustine, to get rid of Pelagianism and semi-Pelagianism and return to an Augustinian view of God's grace. In fact, one of the slogans of the Reformation was ad fontes, to the fount, to the origin, to the source, this sort of idea, not just to Scripture, but also to the early church fathers. And, uh, and so as they go back to this Augustinian view of grace, there is this recovery of the idea that mankind is innately depraved and meriting no favor by God, that if you do what is in you, what are you going to do? Sin. That's what's in you. As someone who is by nature children of wrath, as Ephesians 2 would say, that all that is in you is sin. And so if you simply do what is in you, you will sin. You won't merit grace. In fact, you'll just merit more condemnation because grace is not just unmerited favor, it's a demerited favor. We have uh, earned something but not God's grace and not salvation and not life. We've earned wrath and punishment and condemnation. And so without this sort of idea, without the recovery of the Augustinian view of grace, the Pauline view of grace, the biblical view of grace, we're left with pride and self-righteousness and privilege. Uh, Ironically, there also is within the Roman Catholic Church this uh, lack of assurance. Why? Because you never really knew, am I doing fully what's in me? Is what's in me fully good enough to merit God's favor? And so there's always this idea that it, within, the, uh, within the medieval Roman Catholic Church, there is this constant sort of depression. It's kind of like living in the Northwest. There's this constant depression because nobody really knows, have I really, uh, am I really loved by God? And Luther himself is an, an example, an expression 
of that sort of idea, connected to this idea of by grace alone is the idea of faith alone, solo, solo fide. So in the Middle Ages, salvation was in a sense by grace alone because it wasn't so much earned, but you only got, to, to, uh, you only got that grace by partaking of the, the, the various sacraments, doing works of charity, and being a good... Uh, doing a good Catholic. So because there was still some Augustinian influence within the Roman Catholic Church, uh, salvation was technically 100% by grace. But since you had to do other things to get that grace, uh, then it really became this works-based system of salvation, which is why you have guys like uh, Tetzel who were selling indulgences. Uh, there, there are ways to earn God's grace. It's still grace. It's just earned grace. It's kind of like if you have kids and you have them do chores for you and you give them allowance. Uh, yes, you're giving them an allowance, that's a grace, but they have to do something in order to uh, merit it. And, uh, and so that's the idea there. And the, and, the, and the Reformers are not completely united in the way that they understand how grace functions in a believer's uh, life. Uh, they're not completely uh, united on how faith and works go together. Uh, but, uh, but Luther, in particular, his radical idea uh, is that one receives that grace by faith alone. That, that, uh, that grace is something that we receive simply by believing that God is gracious. Simply that, that we receive simply by believing that God is generous, that God is good. That by believing simply that God is not a liar when he promises to justify those who would believe uh, in him. And so there's this famous saying, uh, again, of Luther. He says, I grabbed hold of Paul and would not let him go until he told me what he meant by this idea of the righteous shall live by faith. Calvin would later say this, justified by faith is he who excluded from the righteousness of works, works like indulgences, uh, works like sacraments, excluded from the righteousness of works, grasped the righteousness of Christ through faith and clothed in it appears in God's sight, not as a sinner, but as a righteous person. And the Westminster uh, Confession says this, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and His righteousness, is the alone instrument of justification. Yet it is not alone in the person justified, but it is ever accompanied with all other saving graces and is no dead faith, but worketh by love, trying to deal with the idea of uh, what James would say, that, uh, that, that you're not justified by faith alone, but there is always, accompanying with true saving faith, there is works. But it is faith alone which justifies uh, us. Um, and so, again, this revolutionizes the church because it introduces this opportunity uh, for us not to simply do what's in us and worry, have we done enough, or is what's in us enough, but simply to rest, to rest in who God is and what He's promised and what He's given and His generosity and, uh, and grace. So it really is an opportunity not to rest in ourselves, but to rest in God, which is the next of the solas, which is solus Christus, Christ alone. The Catholic Church certainly taught that one is saved by the merits of Christ, but at the same time, they also taught that Mary and certain saints had an excess of merits. Certain people because of uh, their participation in the sacraments or because of uh, their being a particularly good 
Catholic because they did these particular works of charity, whatever it might be, certain people have an excess of righteousness. Let's say that God requires 100 righteousness points for you, from you, and uh, certain people might die and they have 150. So those 50 other righteousness points somehow can be credited to your account. This is, this is an idea that exists within uh, the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And so Mary and the saints had merits that could be applied to you. Certain people are so holy that they have an excess amount of righteousness that can be counted to you. In fact, Mary is seen as a, a, a co-redemptrix, or even the, the, the phrase that's used of her is a mediatrix, which is interesting because uh, in the Pauline epistles it says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And yet Mary is seen as this uh, mediatrix. They also believed in what's called real intrinsic merit. It's the idea that as you become more holy, you actually become more worthy of God's love. At some point, you begin to uh, merit God's love because you are actually growing in, uh, in holiness. He loves you when you're a sinner, but as you grow in holiness, He loves you more, and you start becoming more meritorious. Uh, you start becoming something that actually merits His love. But the Reformers come in, and they hear this and they begin to respond vehemently and, uh, and, and violently against this sort of idea by saying that you're saved not by any of your own merits, but by having Christ's merits imputed to you, by having Christ's merits counted as being yours, or that you are incorporated into Christ is the idea of, Cal, uh, of Calvin. This means that righteousness is something that is extrinsic. Righteousness is something uh, that is not internal, it's not like there is a little bit of righteousness in us and we need to just simply fan that little flame uh, and eventually it will turn into this wildfire. No, the idea is there must be a match that's struck from outside of you. It's what's called an alien righteousness. It's not something that's innate or intrinsic to you. It's something that God must grant to you and he grants it to you through Jesus. Jesus in Jesus alone has an excess of merits that can be applied uh, to you and they're freely available to any uh, who would uh, trust Him. And the result of this is sola dea gloria, glory to God alone. If you were to ask a, a Catholic in the Middle Ages, does God, is God and God alone worthy of all merit uh, or worthy of all glory? They would have absolutely said yes. But at the same time, you can see how their understanding of salvation their understanding of grace, their understanding of works, all of these things are playing out in such a way as to reserve a little bit of glory for me. A little bit of glory for me. I, I did what was in me. It might have been small, 1%, 2%, 10%, whatever it is, but I get a little bit. If I did, if I contribute 1% to my salvation, I get 1% of the glory. And the reformer said, no. You contribute nothing to your salvation except for sin, so your salvation is 100% God and God's alone, and therefore He gets all of the glory. What is the chief end of man? As the Westminster Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So in light of this, there's this little thread that runs through all of these solas. These solas are threads that run through all of the reformers, but there's a thread that runs through all of these uh, solas that I think is really interesting. What you see is this little word sola. Sola or soli or solus, to, because of the, the word that follows it, uh, has to be conjugated. But the idea there is the same, alone. 
grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone, the glory of God alone, Christ uh, alone, which means alone or only, and it implies this concept, which is sufficiency. Sufficiency really is this thread, this golden thread that runs through all of these solos and really runs through the heart of what the Reformation is about. The idea of the Reformation is really about sufficiency. And the question is, is Scripture sufficient? Or do we need extra biblical revelation? Do we need papal decrees? Do we need tradition in order to know God and live rightly and be saved? Is our canon of Scripture sufficient? Or do we also need the Apocrypha? Is grace sufficient or do we need works? Is faith sufficient or do we need sacraments? Is Christ sufficient or do we need Mary and the saints and ancient relics? Is the cross sufficient or do we need purgatory and indulgences? So the bottom line is, is the gospel sufficient? What the reformers were saying was, let's cut out the middleman. Let's go directly to Jesus. Let's go directly to God. Let's go directly to the gospel. Let's go directly to life. And more than a reformation, I think what the reformation really is, is more this restoration. It's a restoration of the glories of the gospel. It's a restoration of the message of grace and hope and life and the glory of God and utter and inherent inerrancy, infallibility, insurpassability, authority and sufficiency of Scripture. So the reformation really is not about what Luther does on October 31st, 1517. The reformation is not about Calvin. The Reformation is not about Zwingli. The Reformation is about Jesus. The sufficiency and the merits and the glory of Jesus Christ. I want to read this passage and then pray for us and then we're going to sing one more song and we'll be dismissed. Romans eleven thirty three through 36 says this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. I thank you for the Reformation. I thank you for flawed men. Flawed men like Martin Luther and John Calvin. I thank you that you always work through flawed men with the exception of your son, who is the perfect man. And so all of our failures, though, just drive us through uh, to the one who is perfect. And so uh, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the work that you did, the opportunity that we have to read a Bible in English, the opportunity that we have to be literate, the opportunity we have to understand the words that are coming out of my mouth because I'm not praying in Latin, the opportunity that we have to sing congregationally, whereas just... Uh, a generation before the Reformation, people were burned at the stake for even suggesting it. People were burned at the stake for translating scriptures. So I'm grateful, Lord. I'm grateful that though your church drifts and errs and falters, it never fails, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so with that hope and expectation, we glory in your Son, and we pray in his name. Amen.